Welcome to Access and Opportunity. This season, we're exploring how influential investors from across various pools of capital are helping women and multicultural-led businesses to gain access to capital. In this episode, I'm excited to be talking with the woman who created one of the largest venture capital funds in the world that focuses on multicultural and women-led businesses. Jenny Abramson is the founder and managing partner of Rethink Impact, a venture capital firm that invests in female leaders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. Jenny and her partners launched Rethink in 2015 specifically to help women entrepreneurs and other diverse company founders obtain equitable access to capital. Today, in addition to talking to us about how she developed Rethink Impact, Jenny will contextualize the inequities that characterize today's funding landscape. Jenny will offer us strategic advice on how we can work to increase the number of women and people of color receiving investment capital. We'll consider how existing changes in the funding landscape have opened up opportunities and where additional improvements can be made to even out the distribution of capital to women and multicultural entrepreneurs. Come on and join me for the ride. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us today. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's jump right in. This season, we are spending time talking to investors about their strategies, why they invest, the way they invest, but more importantly, trying to uncover and have deep conversations with people who are, in our opinion, doing it right with respect to investing with multicultural and women entrepreneurs. So tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to rethink. Sure. Before Rethink Impact, I was the CEO of a security tech company focused on preventing sexual assaults and school shootings primarily. There were two interesting things, well, many interesting things I learned, but two in particular that led me to creating Rethink Impact. First, as a female tech CEO, I began to see fewer women on stage with me and less peers getting blue chip investors. And I started wondering why this was the case. What shocked me was that more than 20 years ago, when my own mom ran a VC that invested in women, female founders got 2.5% of venture dollars. And today, or at least when I was looking in 2015, women got only 2.3%. So it had actually gone down, despite the fact that there was all sorts of data showing that having women on the leadership team helps you outperform. And the second thing was, as I mentioned, I was leading an impact business, and I saw firsthand how social impact can be good for business. So I really saw this as an opportunity to invest with a gender lens mixed with impact, which led to my partners and I creating Rethink Impact. Can we talk a little bit about your mother's fund? Because one could argue that she was before her time, yet that was only 20 years ago. So the other part of me could argue that that she was not ahead of her time because the data had started to come to the marketplace about how powerful it is to have diverse teams. Did she find any challenges in finding companies to invest in? You know, she would say that, you know, they had a lot of good companies to invest Mm -hmm. in. And she's really proud and excited when she talks about those companies. But when we talk about what's changed and why now might be the moment where things are finally going to turn, one of the things she has said to me is that there are so many more experienced women who really can take these businesses to the next level than even when she was doing it. 
The reason I ask that question, because when you talk to people today about why they are not investing more with women or multicultural entrepreneurs, the refrain, even in 2019, still is, I can't find any. And our own experience at Morgan Stanley in running the Multicultural Innovation Lab is that it is not a supply problem. We've had no issue whatsoever in finding lots of multicultural entrepreneurs and lots of women across all kind of tech-enabled businesses, from medtech to edtech to energy tech to to entertainment, retail, all of the industries. I can't think of one where I haven't seen a woman or a person of color as an entrepreneur in a tech-enabled business in those industry sectors. So I was just wondering whether or not 20 years ago, I know you heard the can't find any 20 years ago, but I was wondering about her experience, and it doesn't sound like she had extraordinary challenges in finding good opportunities to invest in. No, I, I think they had a lot of opportunities. And so I'd like to make this a playbook point for those who would say that they want to play or that they're interested but can't find any. What do you think is the right prescription? Some people have said, is it having more women and people of color at the investment table? Is it immersing, as we suggested in our trillion dollar report, is actually getting out there and getting in the traffic of some of these entrepreneurs? Because it's not hard to figure out where they traffic. But what would you say are the two or three things that an interested in seasoned VC investor who wants to invest in this sector, what might they do? You know, I think one thing is about building your pipeline from the ground up, right? There's a lot of networks that lead to your pipeline in venture capital. And if your networks are leading you to only one type of person, maybe you need to expand where you're looking. So in our case, we built relationships with accelerators and incubators all around the country to increase our geographic diversity as well Mm -hmm. as other diversity. A second is your diversity of your own team, right? If you look like the people that you're investing in and you have no diversity on your team and no diversity in them, it's probably a good idea to diversify your own team. Yes. And I couldn't agree more that leveraging other people's networks as as a playbook point is one of the most important things that you can do. If you start to say, I'm looking for X and you ask the question, then people will send you that which you're looking for. So let's talk a little bit about Rethink and how it was born and how did you develop Rethink Impact from an idea, frankly, to one of the largest funds focused on women with investors ranging from well-known individuals like Jennifer Frist to large institutions like the Kellogg Foundation. We've been very fortunate to have investors across 32 states who are diverse in all kinds of ways, uh, even politically. And we think that that's really important and adds a lot to our perspective and what we learn, but also to our entrepreneurs. Our investors have been really helpful to entrepreneurs. And I think I was able to to do this with my partners and build it in part because there was really an opportunity in the moment. And there was an opportunity, and I think people saw that. And if they could connect with an institutional scale VC that was going to tackle this in a way that was focused on returns first and foremost, but also saw impact and gender as a mechanism to help achieve those returns as opposed to a trade-off with those returns, Mm -hmm. I think the world was realizing that this was the moment. Well, one of the things I'd like to drill down on, Jenny, is Frida Kapoor-Klein, she has talked a lot about understanding 
the fact that some of the entrepreneurs have an advantage because they understand the problem. And so she has learned how to think about her investing decision around someone who uniquely understands and owns the issue that that company is trying to solve. And one of the things my own chairman says, as he talks to all of the entrepreneurs that are in our lab, he asks each of them the same question. Why are you the natural owner of this opportunity? And I've learned now to embrace that question and think about that when I am evaluating whether or not that's the right person we should invest in. So can you talk a little bit about the lens that's different than the traditional VC lens? Because that's one of the things that we explored a little in the trillion dollar uh, report. Yeah, when we're looking at entrepreneurs, we're looking for a number of things. First and foremost, sort of as you talk about, we want someone who deeply understands the problem they're trying to solve. The businesses we look at in general are trying to tackle the UN Sustainable Development Goals, primarily in health, education, environmental sustainability, and economic empowerment, or fintech. And those businesses are using tech to solve major problems at scale. And we think that the problems are so big that it's actually a huge market opportunity can attract the best talent and can pose pretty strong unit economics when you think about using tech to solve it. And so for entrepreneurs who have either experienced that problem firsthand, whether it's you know a parent who's experienced it with their kids or in school in the ed tech space, a patient in the healthcare system, an environmental scientist or a learner in the sustainability space, or someone who's lived through you know sort of economic challenges, we believe that they bring something to bear to that problem solving. We also want them to deeply understand how to use technology to solve those problems at scale. We think that that is the sort of way to do this in a way that really tackles these problems. And we want them to surround themselves with people that are different from them, talented, but also diverse teams. And you see a lot of times entrepreneurs in the early phases sort of partnering up with their best buddies or friends. And we think that it's really important from, from the early stages to have diversity because that then grows exponentially as you grow a company. And it's always hard to make time to change that path. And when you add all of those to the final thing worth mentioning is someone who really understands their customer. You know, whether it's a business or an individual, really knows what needs to happen for that person to want to pay for and take their time to use that product. And so they're really listening to the customer. They're really internalizing that and they're adjusting the product, which obviously has to be excellent, to reflect that. Mm-hmm. Which is which is very interesting because when you hear about the stories in Silicon Valley, especially within the VEC community, you hear people first talk about whether or not this is a billion dollar or multi-billion dollar opportunity, whether or not this company has the capability of being a unicorn. I rarely hear people say that the entrepreneur needs to own, have lived it, have some unique experience around it. They can just have identified a gap in the market identified an opportunity and decide that they're going to go for it. And it sounds like the way you all are investing, that would not be enough in itself. You know, there are always exceptions, but I look at some of our companies, whether it's the company with the CEO whose grandmother was suffering from Alzheimer's and she went on and built early 
diagnostic test to allow you to know three to five years earlier if you're going to have cognitive decline and then a digital therapy to stem the decline. That came from a very personal place. Or the CEO who put herself through business school while working at Google and had student debt and went on and said, I'm going to tackle this massive crisis in student debt and built a B2B business to help employers tackle the student debt crisis through her technology platform. But we think when people come with that experience, it really takes them to a whole new level because every entrepreneur is going to face challenges. But if you have the kind of passion that that brings, that personal experience brings, I think you're more likely to get through the challenges. It's not that I don't think you can build a business without those challenges. Mm -hmm. I think it helps fuel you in the in the harder times. Yes. When I was the chair of the National Women's Business Council, one of the pieces of research that we produced showed that many women did not go back to accelerators or even to certain VCs once they had gone and they had been rejected. And that suggested or the research suggested heavily that there was something in the experience that made them say, you know what? Life is short. I'm not going back there again, as opposed to suggesting that they weren't resilient. They would just find other ways than go back there. So that's why I'm trying to get at this, what I hope is a playbook point about how investors might comport themselves, what they might say, how they may present themselves to a market of entrepreneurs that will encourage people to take two or three bites at the apple if you don't get it the first time, or at least inform them around why they didn't make the cut. Yeah, it's interesting. Two points. So one is there's been some great research on the kinds of questions that VCs ask men versus women yes. around their business, right? Yes. And sort of whether they're promoting questions or almost risk-averse type questions. Yes. And I think it gives the entrepreneur on the other side a very different experience when someone's saying to them, how do you get this to a billion dollars versus someone saying, how do you prevent this from going under? And I think that's one piece that's really important. I think what we have tried to do, and obviously we're not perfect, but in our interactions with entrepreneurs, is try to come at it first and foremost from a place of support. You know, especially when you're talking about impact businesses, these people have put their lives into these startups. They mean something in many cases personally, as we talked about. So starting from a place of when I'm preparing for a call with an entrepreneur, realizing how amazing it is what they have done and really acknowledging that on the front end, I think can put an entrepreneur at ease. Mm -hmm. And it's an important acknowledgement, which is sort of saying, regardless of whether we fund you, whether you're a fit for our particular funds, in many cases, they're too early for us or they're not a fit. You're amazing. What you've done is incredible. And then we'll move into hearing about the business, being very open if it's not a fit, and then hopefully saying, but have you thought about this? Or have you talked about this? And my hope is that the combination of that leaves the entrepreneur, one, willing to come back, because many times we'll, we'll track someone for 18 months before we mm -hmm. actually invest, mm -hmm. and leaves them at a place where they want to come back, and they leave feeling good about what they're doing. Yes, and I, I thought that was an important point for us to talk about, because no one really knows what's happening behind the closed door, and some entrepreneurs are so shell-shocked when they walk out of some of the VC offices that they don't even want to talk about it. So I wanted to get it out there that it's not always a pleasant experience. And if you, investor community, really want to make a difference and get an opportunity to see these amazing deals, then you might want to figure out how you're coming off, how you are communicating, whether or not you're giving really good feedback that they can own and actually execute, if you will, before they come back the next time. Two of our most recent investments we made actually came from people we had passed on. Wow. So we had passed on the entrepreneur and they ended up sending another entrepreneur our way 
who we invested in. Wow. So for us, this isn't just about being kind or about being inclusive. This is actually good business. And for us, it's good business that will drive the social change that people want. Yeah. And you don't know how many deals you're not seeing because somebody is walking out of your office with a pretty bad taste in their mouth. And the point that you brought up earlier about the kinds of questions that the research says that are different, we found the same thing among our survey of investors that said that there would be questions around confidence for uh, women entrepreneurs that were not asked, if you will, for men entrepreneurs. And while I don't often like to give gender-based advice, I guess I would give the advice to the investors to make sure that there's not bias, that if you're asking the questions, ask the same questions across. And the other interesting thing is that they're walking in with an assumption around the female entrepreneur's confidence that clearly you don't have that assumption with a male entrepreneur. That's confidence, other things. One of our CEOs told me a story where... She said a number of investors asked her, was she married? Was she planning to have kids? Right? I'd be curious how- In, in, in 20, During a pitch. Past right? 2010? Right. right. And, and, and you go, huh? Really? That happened? And wow. it's a hard place because you're in a, you know, in a power dynamic in that moment where you don't want to, you know, you want to answer questions. Absolutely. And you want to feel confident. Yes. But it's surprising when I hear some of the stories that we hear from these entrepreneurs. Now, you have an amazing group of female investors in Rethink called We Capital, which includes Sheila Johnson, Sachiko Kuno, and many others who have been very public about their investment. So tell us a little bit about We Capital and, and what that experience has been like. We Capital is a consortium of women in the nation's capital that invests in the power of women to change the world. It's powered by Rethink Impact. And what we do is my partner Heidi and I essentially multiply this group's influence uh, by aiming to invest in the very people we invest in, diverse entrepreneurs tackling big problems. And so we have found that it's really important, as I mentioned, to show entrepreneurs that they aren't just getting money from a diverse firm and a female-led firm. They're getting money from a firm that gets money from all kinds of people, Um, people Mm. that look like them, people who don't, and people who are there to support them. And some of our investors have been incredibly helpful to our entrepreneurs, and, and this is a group that has certainly done that. So let's talk a little bit about the funding landscape. Do you think it's better, worse, the same as it might have been five years ago, or does it feel like it's getting better? You know, I think there's a few factors. One is there's just a lot more money out there, right? The venture space has grown significantly. So while the percentage of dollars going to women hasn't dramatically gone up, the total dollars going has gone up. And so I just think there's more money out there. Doesn't mean there aren't more startups, but there's more money out there. And I think that's a good thing. I think the second thing is there's more and more data that actually shows that when you invest in businesses that have women in leadership, and frankly, we think it's about diversity more than it is about any one gender or anything else, that you have better returns and better revenue, sometimes better valuations. And I think people are finally starting to hear that message. And it's making it so that people who don't look like the stereotypical business leader um, can actually start to get some funding. So I think that you're starting to see that. And so from a better environment standpoint, I call that better. Yes. I was asked the question on Bloomberg over a week ago, what do you think it's going to take to actually change the inequity of the distribution of capital going to women and multicultural entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think it's a few things. So one, now I'm a data nerd, so take this for what it's worth, but I think data does change things and success change things. So part of what we're trying to do is build the next generation of iconic female 
billionaires leading unicorns, right? Yes. And, and diverse founders leading great businesses because we think when you see that and you hold it up, whether it's the recent unicorns of Rent the Runway or Stitch Fix or any of the others, people go, oh, okay, this is a model that could work. So yes. I think that's one piece. And having both the big studies and the others, you know, the Peterson Institute did that when you go from zero to 30% female leadership on your team, you see 15% increase in net revenue. All those studies are great, but sometimes it's the individual stories and the individual success stories that really drive things to change. So when we look at our portfolio, we see some of these people who could be those next sort of unicorns, and we think that's going to drive change. And I think the second is having more capital moving into this space. So when you look at seed stage money, uh, I think we're almost up to 20% of that money going to female entrepreneurs. That's a pretty big change and a really positive change. That is an important piece of the equation. And while certainly people will tell you we need more, if we can solve this capital gap at the A and B round, where men are three times more likely than women to get funded at an A and B, once they get to a C, we think a female entrepreneur is as likely to get funded as her male counterpart. And so if we can solve that gap, that will make a big difference in the opportunity. So a playbook point, number one, having more visibility around the successes that come out of the Series A and Series B, more visibility and marketing around those that are unicorns and put more data out there as people continue to put more and more data out there. And then, you know, I would think that we have a little bit of a perfect storm right now. As you said, there's a lot of cap floating around on the sidelines that's looking to go into this and I think an increase in entrepreneurial appetite among millennial and Z women. Well, so that's the other thing. The third point I was going to make beyond the sort of examples of success and the incredible data is who's controlling wealth. So by 2030, two-thirds of wealth in this country will be controlled by women. 84% of women would like their capital to be aligned with their social values. Millennials having this $59 trillion sort of intergenerational transfer of wealth 86% of millennials believe their capital should be aligned with their values. When you see this happening at the pace that it's happening, you can't help but believe that the money is going to go to places that not only are supporting more diverse entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs that are doing things that impact the world in a positive way. Because Mm -hmm. those are good businesses. They attract the best talent. They're big opportunities because, sadly, those problems are so large. And they can use tech to scale them efficiently. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well said. Well, Jenny, one of the things that we like to do is do a little bit of a lightning round that I think is a lot of fun so that our listeners get a chance to know a little bit more about Jenny the woman, not just Jenny the outstanding executive, Jenny the outstanding investor, Jenny the outstanding entrepreneur in her own right, but who is she as a woman? What are some of the things that she really likes? So are you ready? Sure. First thing that comes to your mind, favorite book or magazine? I would have to say Money Magazine and specifically the one that had one of our companies on the cover where (laughs) they put the chief product officer on the cover and she was pregnant. It was the first pregnant woman ever on the cover of Money Magazine. Wow. Okay. City or countryside? City. Winter or summer? Summer. My entirely weather-based decision of where I went to college was based on. (laughs) Well, this one is going to be a tricky one, and almost every investor declines to answer this one. But your favorite women-owned or multicultural-owned business investment, the one you're most excited about? 
Just like your children. Exactly. They're all your favorite. <laughs> now, you can go to RethinkImpact.com and, and see all of our incredible entrepreneurs. Okay, coffee or tea? Tea. Coffee tastes like dirt. <laughs> well, as I sit here and have my cup of coffee, listeners, uh, anyway, email or, <laughs> or phone call? Both. Hmm. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? I can think of many incredible CEOs that I would invite, but if none of our uh, CEOs could come, I'm a big hockey fan, so probably Alexander Ovechkin. Okay. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Can I say a phrase? Yes. Rethinking impact. Oh, you go, girl. I'm not mad at you. Thanks so much, Jenny, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to the first episode of Season 3 of Access and Opportunity. I'm Carla Harris, and next week we'll be talking to Dr. Paul Judge, an entrepreneur and investor who is raising the city of Atlanta's profile as a technology hub. See you then.